Okay, great souls. Here we are. Class number 10. We're moving right along. We are at number 28. So, the end is hardly in sight, but we are making progress. Uh, Not that we're in a hurry for it. We don't mind growing old together. So, any comments or questions before we barrel on? We are now at 28. Yeah, you missed one. Okay. So, number 28. The Master was standing out of doors at Mount Washington with a small group of us, discoursing at length on spiritual matters. At a certain point, he looked at me and said, Hey, Walter, (laughs) write that down. I've never said that before. What follows is, as nearly as I could recall, what he just finished saying. In meditation, you must go beyond thought. As long as you are busy thinking, you are in your rational mind on the conscious plane. When you sleep and dream, you are on the subconscious plane and in your astral body. And when your mind is fully withdrawn in superconsciousness, it becomes centered in the bliss of the spine. You are then in your ideational or causal body. That is the level of the soul. Well, I don't know if I have anything to comment on. That's pretty complete all by itself. Well, the, the amusing part is Master getting Swami's attention, telling him to keep up with his job. But the part about being in your astral body when you're on the subconscious plane, I don't know what to think about that. When I had a conversation with Swamiji once about people having dreams, dreams of him, dreams of other people, where there's a real, seemingly a real exchange of energy, um, some... Uh, uh, sometimes in the last few months people have told me they've dreamt about me and they've talked about what, what happened and even though I didn't remember that it happened, what they described to me um, could have happened. You know, just in terms of people giving energy and helping each other out. And when I asked Swamiji a question about that, his answer was most interesting. His answer was that the superconscious never sleeps. And so even though the brain goes to sleep, that doesn't mean that your higher self is ever asleep. And what, what good intentions you would have, um, especially soul-inspired intentions, to, to help your guru bhais and to love your friends, um, would just be as active even though your brain was asleep as if when your brain was awake. So when he talks about being in the astral body, sometimes in dream states... I mean, that's what a lot of people say. A lot of people make a really big point of that, that when you're in your dream state, you can actually just go anywhere in the cosmos because you're not fettered anymore by the material plane and you can contact each other. So the desire that you would have in your conscious mind that might not be fulfilled in the conscious mind can be fulfilled through the astral body. It's an interesting thought. Yes. Um, So the question that occurs to me with that bit is the association of the subconscious and the astral world because I would I would think moving from our physical body towards our astral energetic body is a step towards our idea causal body but subconscious doesn't seem like a step in the right direction well, towards superconscious. I think what we're thinking there is that the subconscious is that the brain is in the subconscious state. The, the brain has become unaware. The conscious mind is unaware but uh, um, let me just think how to say that. 
Um, I know it, it, it's not clarified there because when he says you're in the sub, that, there is a contradiction. All the way through the sentence and he can mean different no, things. It, there's you. a contradiction in the sentence between being in your subconscious mind and being in your astral state because he's not saying that the astral world is subconscious. So uh, that's just a contradiction. But, but we know that just because you're asleep, when you're asleep, you're in the subconscious state. But that doesn't mean the other part of you that doesn't sleep because he says when you dream can go into the astral world. But I think it would matter about the quality of the dream. You have to realize Master didn't, def- didn't trace it all the way out to finish the thought. Since the word you is basically meaning different things. I'm so sorry. Like the, because there's the you in your subconscious state, which is like your brain, you is being subconscious. But then you, maybe your soul is acting as an astral body. You could body. put it like that. You are, but he says you are on the subconscious plane and in your astral body. He could mean that you're in both places at the same time if you want to parse apart the English in that sense. Yeah. I, it's, not, it's not so much your soul because what is your soul? It's your awareness, your individuality. But it's, you know, there's different kinds of dreams. Some dreams are super conscious, so some dreams... So I, he hasn't. This is not a definitive statement of every single possibility. He's just giving us a general idea here. I think if we try to analyze it too exactly, we're going to run into trouble, because Master didn't edit it, and Swami says this is merely, as nearly as I can recollect what he said. So I think if you'd stood and asked Master questions, he would have defined it out a little bit farther, conceivably. Does that make sense? I think the part of me that's most interesting is that, you know, many of your dreams, you're in your astral body when you're dreaming, which is just sort of an interesting thought. But I don't think all our dreams are, some of them are really just garbage. (laughs) But sometimes they are, that's what I was trying to say, sometimes you really are making contact with people, but you're not necessarily making super conscious contact, but you're having real connections when you and they are both asleep. But it's, the connections you're having are more like, what you would have if you were awake together, not so much as if you were in samadhi together, but they're happening when part of you is in a subconscious state. And that sort of, does that make sense? You understand? I mean, I've had dreams of people who were sad and they were at a distance. I didn't know they were sad. I was comforting them. A couple of times that's happened to me and I just, a couple of times I've sort of found out things that I didn't know were happening except that I dreamt they were happening and I was with the person. Then when I came back into everyday life, I could verify it. But it wasn't a super conscious experience. It was just a contact. We asked it was a contact happening when our bodies were asleep. And therefore it was, it was different. But it wasn't, it, you couldn't call it super conscious really. But that's where Swami's answer was, the super conscious doesn't sleep, meaning all of our intentions toward love and friendship and, and caring for each other and so on that's, the, that's a superconscious intention because it's expansive and it's loving and it's God-inspired. Subconscious intentions are um, more downward pulling. So that's why he said the superconscious doesn't sleep. doesn't mean that you're in a superconscious state all the time. It just means that that energy is always uh, influencing us, influences our dreams even. So, I mean, Master's kind of explaining how you can do all those things in, when you're in a sleep because you're in a sub, on the subconscious plane and in your astral body. <laughs> Interesting. Yes? To, I think I'm supporting what you're saying but maybe complicating things further. Because okay, go right ahead. 
<laughs> Master also said I, that. Tondo has retired from that role at the moment, so go ahead, you can do it, Saranya. You're just as good at it as he is. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> nah, maybe not quite, but we go ahead. <laughs> and that. then Tom can have a turn. Let's go on. <laughs> when we leave this body and go into the astral world, he said that most people who are not at a higher um, consciousness level are in sort of a dream state anyway, or in sort of a gray... Gray dream is the word master used, yeah. So being in the astral world does not necessarily mean that you're at a higher consciousness level. Oh, that's a very good point. Yeah, sometimes sometimes in the astral world you're subconscious because you don't have the capacity to see it. Good point, Saranya. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Now bear in mind, you know, these are just conversations. These are not definitive treatises. And... uh, Swamiji, of course, made sure that everything he wrote made sense to a certain point, but he obviously did not try to pin every aspect down and refine every nuance. Because there are points in here where it's just, that's what he said, and there you are. But you do know if you said, but sir, could you explain thus and so? Either he would or he wouldn't, but he could every time. Yes. I have a couple thoughts. One, I think the line um, when he says, when you sleep and dream you are on the subconscious plane. He doesn't say you're in your subconsciousness. I think there may be two, I think the... Oh, I see what you mean, yeah. yeah, I think the way we, when we usually say subconsciousness, we're thinking about our lower nature and all of our dumb parts. But I think maybe he's talking about the subconscious plane as just the afterworld. No, I think he means you're asleep. (laughs) When you're asleep, when you're asleep, you're in you're gesturing with the microphone. Okay. Yeah. I don't guess it makes any. Really no, it doesn't really difference. make any difference because no. there's no big point. No, there's no there's big no point real, here. Nobody understands this. <laughs> no, it's it's. But you're on the subconscious plane because you're not aware. See, that's the point. Subconscious is when you. It's sub, in this context, subconscious is less aware, and that's what happens when we go to sleep. Is we're less aware. We're not able to cognize that, I, you know, I'm in my room and this is happening over here and it's the middle of the night and it's Wednesday or whatever it is because we're subconscious. We've lost that, that much awareness. So even if in that sub, on that subconscious plane you have some other experience over here, you're still also on the subconscious plane because so much of your awareness is cut off from you. But then you go into your astral body and may have this experience over here, but still you're also on the subconscious plane in that sense of, of limiting your awareness and it also becoming uh, entirely, entirely self-defined. That's also the subconscious plane, that it's not a shared reality. So you're having this dream state. It's not a shared reality or that you're all alone having it. You can't communicate it with anyone else while you're on the subconscious plane. So how, you, how all that reconciles, I don't know. But that, but that is part of why he says that, and those are the characteristics we need to understand. And we think of the subconscious, but the subconscious is merely everything that's already happened and a, a diminution of awareness, which is not so great. But still, we go to sleep, and there you have it. We have to go to sleep because, well, I remember once when I stayed up all night for some reason to do some work or something. By the next afternoon, I wasn't even actually, the next night, for some reason, I wasn't even that tired but I was tired of being conscious. I really was. I was just. It was very. I was very aware of the fact that wow, if if uh, you know a master 
it just has to be aware all the time how tiring it was it was very vivid to me the extent to which going subconscious and becoming less aware was part of my coping mechanism and that even if my body wasn't demanding it i was demanding it i i just had it with being aware i needed to be unaware for a while i mean it's a really it's a very interesting point and that's why people can oversleep is because they really don't want to have awareness. I wasn't oversleeping, but I just, you know, 36 hours of being uh, in the conscious mind was about my limit. And I just wanted to go somewhere else for a while. Uh, I was reading somewhere, Master, talking about working, um, uh, you know, sometimes 25 hours a day, 23 hours a day, and just like being asleep for one hour. And, And there's so many aspects of that one of which is that there's no need for rest. In fact, I remember a person who uh, was not really that, that self-aware, and they got married, and they married someone who had a far higher energy level than they did, and just a far, a far greater level of uh, just active involvement in the world. And it, there, was a, there was a great dissonance between the two of them, among other things, because... The, the woman in this case who was accustomed to recharging by reverting to subconsciousness, not necessarily by going to sleep, but by just becoming dull. And suddenly in the living with this person who was always energized and wide awake, the uh, person who had recovered their equanimity by going subconscious just found themselves completely, essentially uh, frazzled and blown to pieces because they did not know how to cope without the opportunity that living alone had given them to just, well, let's use the word zone out. Because in the company now of this partner, the partner was always peppy and ready. And this person needed to zone out and it couldn't happen. And the long-term consequences, of course, were disastrous for the relationship. But, you know, it was an opportunity for everybody to learn. But instead, we just didn't. (laughs) It was too great a stretch in any case. But it was interesting to me. See, Swamiji uh, did not relax. Subconscious for Swami, because everybody has a spectrum, was sitting and reading P.G. Woodhouse. Or uh, like he, um, Woodhouse, like he, um, he says in The Path, when uh, he was at the beginning days of Mount Washington, and suddenly it was just all too much for him. So in a state of absolute rebellion, he stretched out on his bed and read Shakespeare. I mean, that was just like, <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> but all through his life, that you know, when he wanted to, um, he, he just, he, he, he recharged at a very high level of awareness. He, he did not find it recharging to sink too low. In fact, when he ever was too tired or took too long a nap or something, he would just kvetch and kvetch about it, you know, just like, Oh, I just wasted the whole day. I've been asleep for an hour. I just really, all I did was write two books and three songs today. You know, kind of. <laughs> Slight exaggeration, but not much. I mean, I've told you, well, we go on holiday with him, and he would say, well, breakfast at 8.30? Uh, how about breakfast at 11? But it would always be breakfast at 8.30, 9 at the latest, you know, just. And relaxation was being together, having conversation, but it, was, it wasn't just sinking into unconsciousness as a rule. Okay.
So, moving on. Number 29. In lectures, the master would sometimes address a question people often ask concerning the nature and even the existence of evil and its purpose in the great scheme of things. There needs to be a villain, he explained, so that people will be inspired to love the hero. If you act the villain's part, however, you will have to suffer his punishment. Joseph Stalin, he continued, was one such villain. The name Stalin means steel. Stalin's actual name at birth was Yosef Vissarionovich Jugashvili. No, I didn't say that right. Jugashvili. I'm sure I pronounced that horribly. I had an opportunity once to meet his former chauffeur who told me, when I was driving Stalin, I would often hear him repeat with great firmness the affirmation, I am Stalin, I am Stalin, I am steel. Whew. For the bad karma Stalin acquired in this life, and also in previous lives, he will have to suffer a hundred thousand years. On several occasions, the Master told us, Stalin, in a recent incarnation, was the ruthless conqueror Genghis Khan. Debbie Mukherjee, a Bengali disciple, responded to the Master's prediction regarding Stalin's punishment for past sins by exclaiming, Only so long, Master? As if a hundred thousand years were nothing at all. How long do you want him to suffer? asked the Master. God is no tyrant. He loves all his children equally. It's such an interesting little vignette, isn't it? There's a few here. Master's talking about uh, UFOs and other planets and space travel. I mean, it's fun that Swami recorded all these things because these are questions that you ask. And it's, it's just wonderful to have the Master's insight into this. So first of all, we have to talk about the concept of the villain. And, you know, it's, it's not a, a satisfactory deeply metaphysical answer to say there has to be a villain so that people will be inspired to love the hero. But it is a fact that a lot of what drives us to the light is the contrast with the darkness. If there's no contrast, it's not as vivid to us that we're always needing to make a choice. I would put it in another way. If you didn't see the evil, you would tend to just drift along considering whatever it is that you have to be enough. But when the evil is always pushing against you in one form or another, and you, you really see it, in the previous, um, some of the previous conversations, we were talking about how Master, Swami was talking about how Master would see a person's flaw and then try to pull that flaw out of him so he himself could see what it really looked like. Um, and in a sense, that's not exactly talking about a villain, but what, what, what Master was doing was that, that we were not aware of the downward pulling implications, the suffering inherent in a particular attitude, just how ugly a certain attitude could be, because we live with it. Or we just see it in others and don't like it, and then that's what he would sometimes say, but we don't really understand it. So he would draw it out of you so that you could see yourself so that there would be some point of contrast. And then suddenly we would begin to realize this is not the way I want to be at all. I was reflecting because that uh, the example that I gave, this was two classes ago now, when I talked about when Swamiji 
um, played that whole sequence out with me about whether or not we had to use the extra too long Sunday service readings. And he was giving me solitary, alone within Ananda, permission not to use them. And what he was playing, I realized, I mean, I, I'm saying this because I, was, I didn't really... I didn't really see it as clearly, even though I should have. I mean, what he was pulling out of me was the, well, I, I, I can do this. I'm different than everyone else. You know? And the implication is I'm better. I don't need this. In fact, that's what's even what he articulated, something to the effect of, well, Asha has a lot to say. She doesn't have to read all of those. Yes, actually, now that you mention it, I do. <laughs> you know, but he was doing exactly that. He was just giving back to me what I myself had inside of me, so I could actually look at it and decide whether I really wanted to commit to that. And as I explained to you, he offered that to me, he confirmed it, he, he told everyone I could have it, and then I sat there, having been given what I wanted, but it, it had suddenly come back to me, and I just saw how um, it really wasn't what I wanted. I didn't want to be singled out and told that, you know, I just didn't want to, I was looking for all that praise and confirmation, apparently. But when it was actually given to me, it did not feel good. You know, it felt, it felt dangerous and very icky. And that's why I just repudiated and said, no, sir, I'm going to do exactly what everyone else does. But it was exactly how that would work. But you see, I, I was my own villain in that situation. If there hadn't been that inclination toward delusion, toward evil, if you want to use that word, then I wouldn't have been able to see what humility and harmony and cooperation and respect for Swami and discipleship, I wouldn't have been able to see it as clearly if I hadn't been pulled far away from it. Now, I mean, we may think that a ruthless tyrant like Stalin and all his millions of hapless victims, that's pretty intense. But it's everything that's true on a little plane is also true on a larger plane. You don't always know what's happening. In it, later on, I don't know if we'll get to it or not, we talk about how this, our particular, our whole, our whole little galaxy here is very rajasic. We're very active and very self-seeking. That is the quality of, of where we live in the solar system right now, that we're extremely, I want it for myself. So what do you see? You see someone like Stalin as an example, who really wants it for himself and this is what he wants. And he's willing to kill and, you know, murder his own people and do everything to get what he wants. And we would think we don't need such an extreme example, but maybe we do. Maybe we really need to see it carried that far for us to actually understand because it's the same path that other people are on. It's just taken so much to such an extreme, but when it goes to an extreme, suddenly we become aware of it with our own faults. They have to get bad enough for us actually to notice. Because <laughs> if they're just under there, we, we don't think of them or we don't see them. And so in, God makes the villain in order for us to love the hero. And he gives every soul a chance to play out his own uh, karmic inclination. And he refers to Stalin in here, not only for his bad deeds as Stalin, but for his bad deeds in previous incarnations, including the ruthless conqueror, Genghis Khan. But, uh, but there, this is where the thwarting cross-currents of ego come. It's like, you can be really evil, 
but you still, you have a lot of powerful qualities that are enabling you to be that evil. A lot of willpower, a lot of determination, a certain charisma, a a capacity to channel energy, maybe enormous courage, perhaps great physical self-control, all kinds of things that give you a power that, that, that allows you, the way I think about it, it allows you just to be able to stay ahead of the karma that's chasing you. Just like I talk about a 12-year-old bully can beat up on a 3-year-old and just run away <clears throat> until that 3-year-old grows up. And then he's the same size as you, maybe bigger. And then it will finally catch up with you. But it won't necessarily catch up with you immediately because you can still outrun it. But sooner or later, the cumulative force of that. So uh, Master implies here that Stalling, you know, peaked and is now going down the dark side. But my God, the man had power. And, you know, later on in here, he also, what, what he did say about Stalling, um, because Hitler was a more well-known villain at the time, and it, I think it's in this book somewhere, that Master said that Hitler was a Boy Scout compared to Stalin. I mean, because uh, Hitler's uh, misdeeds, you know, he, he confronted the Allied forces, and the Allied forces conquered Hitler and um, went into his country and revealed the evidence of his actions, whereas what happened in Russia under Stalin was kept a secret. And so it may be known within the country, but there was so much secrecy, so we don't really know. And even, even if we do know, it was he against his own people. So within the country, they would know that. But no one outside the country was affected, as we were with the Jewish people, or we were at war in, in such a way that we were actually seeing it. But Master also, and I'm skipping ahead to say this, he talked about that even though Hitler was by no means any good, um, that he was acting out the karma of many others. He was an instrument for many people's karma. But it's not written right here, but otherwhere, Swami says that Stalin was personally responsible, which is really something, you know, to think about that. A hundred thousand years of suffering. I mean, you see, and it's, it's, it's hard to think like this, but when you see people in really horrible circumstances. You naturally feel compassion for them. But you also have to think, what did you ever do to get yourself into this position? And Swamiji said something very unsentimental and just straightforward when we watched a documentary about Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And they filmed her picking up maggot-ridden paupers from the gutter and bringing them back to her place to die. And Swami just very... Um, calmly, but he even, even as he said it, he sort of said, I wouldn't say this to everyone. But he said, when the camera came up close and you saw those people that she was saving, you could see in their eyes why they were in that position. Just, you know, he could see in their eyes what the consciousness was that had brought them to that. Now, of course, something had shifted because now there was this saintly soul who was also taking care of them. But he said, you could see it in their eyes. Because nothing happens by accident. It's very... Uh, challenging. But then the karma will run its course. And so that's the conversation between Devi Mukherjee Mukherjee and Master, which is nobody is damned for all eternity. 
I mean, you suffer and you suffer and you suffer. So you've caused all this extraordinary suffering when you had the power. Now you have no power at all and all the suffering is heaped upon you. And you get to find out what you were doing and you gradually repent. Just like the story that I've often told of the woman whose daughter was murdered and the woman was and the man was arrested and sent to prison for life. But the mother was so angry that she, she saw that she was going to kill herself with her anger. So in, in a desperate effort to overcome it, she went to the prison to meet her daughter's murderer. And, you know, the, the end of it was they actually became quite close. Because what happened was the man who had murdered the daughter just murdered the daughter rather casually. <clears throat> I don't know the details. Was he a drug addict and wanted her money? Was he just out for a casual thrill? I don't know what it was. But he killed her without thinking about it. He really had not known what he'd done. He hadn't cognized the suffering he'd caused until he saw it on the face of the mother. And then watching her suffer, it's the first time he actually realized what he had caused. And then it began... I mean, so that's how, that, that's how it works. You know, that you do something... You may or may not know. Stalin must have known by then what he was doing because he became intensely paranoid at the end of his life. Extremely so. I mean, he knew that karma was catching up with him. And he was just crazy at the end, they said. And his daughter became a deeply devoted Christian, which is one of the great stories that the Christian world tells. And all of that evil, she repudiated it all and became a devoted Christian. It's just a strange world, isn't it? And then here's the poor man. And he's out there somewhere, here, there, who knows where he is. He's just living through some incarnation. There was another, let me try to think what this was. It was another, it was just a story I was reading of Swami um, seeing some very uh, deformed, struggling man on the streets of some city not in America. And uh, again, Swami, even though Swami helped him a little bit. He said, looking into his eyes, you can see he's not learning anything. You know, he's just angry and, and he's just enraged at his circumstances. He, said, he just said he's not learning anything. Because he's not ready to learn yet. He's just still going to be angry. Amazing, isn't it? I mean, it, it gives you great compassion, but also patience and the other side of it is faith. How much do you want him to suffer? He'll just suffer till the karma runs out. Judas um, was liberated after 2,000 years. 100,000 lifetimes is a lot longer than that. But 100,000 years, 100,000 lifetimes. Yes. Well, oh, okay. Just 100,000 years. Okay. And then also, see, in someplace else, um, it, it, skipping the head slightly, when Master's talking about uh, the gunas and whole galaxies and solar systems being one guna, <clears throat> he talks about the gunas that are entirely tamasic, where it's nothing but cannibalism, cannibalism and warfare and violence. Would someone like Stalin be condemned to live on such an, uh, in such a galaxy for a while, where everybody's just brutally going after each other? But you see, there would also be this nuance to it, which is interesting, which was, you know, he had been such a powerful man. And so some part of him would still, 
And there's a subtlety. So it's not just a question of being beaten or starved or something like that. There's also this memory of, of being able to control his fate and make people do what he wanted to do. And so he's not only suffering, he's suffering also the torture of that recollection. Like Swami talked about the beggar children that he saw in the Calcutta train station, I think. And he said, they were all beggar children, except there was one among them, he said, he said, who looked like a queen. She was just as dirty and disheveled as the others, but her bearing was like an aristocratic. She was just completely different. And Swami, again, looked at her and thought, you know, this is a woman who was extremely selfish, who, who had power and money, but was so extremely selfish, she's been thrown back into this position. But you can see in her eyes, how did I get here? You know, what am I doing here? Because her own memory of herself was that she was wealthy and comfortable and now she's born to beggars. You know, what am I doing here? And that, how much worse that would be. Because, you know, some people who are in that situation, it's, it's just, it's a step up for them. They're begging and they're eating. They have something to do. You know, might be, they might be on the rise. So it's fascinating when you really think about it. Any other questions or comments? You know, when, when I traveled in India, especially in the beginning, which was 30 years ago now, um, there, you know, shudras, you don't see that many shudras in America. There's just not as many. But in India, you actually see people who are shudras. You see people whose level of awareness is just extremely limited because there's not universal education or there wasn't. And I, I vividly remember in Orissa, on our way, we were on our way to um, Puri, to Sri Yukteswar's ashram. And there was a woman in our group, Linda Gerber. She's passed away now. And Linda Gerber was an extremely elegant, very refined lady. used to make great beauty in her home and in our temple all the time. And she had heard me say um, that before we are liberated, we have to experience everything. That's Master saying, you know, if you... You have you have to do it all. You have to, if if you're not interested in something anymore, it's because you've passed through it. So we're we stop at this little Pipli, I think, this place where they sold handicrafts, and they're they're selling peanuts, and we're we are very careful with our pilgrims that we don't buy food off the street because our tummies can't handle it, but they're selling peanuts in the shell in these little newspaper cones, and. So the man selling peanuts has a a push cart that's like about table height and it's on wheels and he parks his little push cart in a place where the tourist bus can stop and then he gets on his push cart and he crouches in that way that Indians crouch like this, hands on his elbows and he just waits for the tourists to come and when they do he scoops 10 rupees worth of peanuts into the cone and he hands it to you. He's on this table height, so he's at your height, and then he waits again. And Linda, after we all bought peanuts and were eating them, comes to me. She was a very, she tended to be a very emotive person. She was just completely beside herself with the fear that she was going to have to be born as a peanut seller in Orissa. <laughs> who was just going to have to spend a whole incarnation just sitting there giving people peanuts. 
<laughs> it takes, you have to take a second. Wait, wait, what is wrong with this? Oh, I figure it out. Okay. The, first of all, this was a shudra. This was a pure shudra man. I mean, he just probably, who knows? It's just he sat there, he put the peanuts in the newspaper, he handed it to you. No creative possibilities occurred to him. This is just what we do. We do what's in front of us. That's all that we do. I pointed out to Linda, Linda, if by some quirk of the karmic law you ended up being born in a peanut-selling family in Orissa, the first thing you'd do would be to find some nice paper to put the peanuts in. <laughs> then you would paint all the carts, you know. Then you would get a little frilly something for you to sit on. Then you would get all the other carts together and you would all make plans and you would sing while you roasted your peanuts. You know, you would just... You would not be able to be a Shudra. You're not a Shudra. You would have to become at least a Vaisha, you know, to try to make it better, to be creative in self-interest. But you would really be a Kshatriya. You would be trying to make it good for everyone because you wouldn't be able to help yourself. That's what your consciousness is right now. And, you know, so it's not like, it's not like you just get, you get somewhere and you just are trapped there. You still have your consciousness. However, in the, going back to Stalin... He had, he would have had all that in him, but the karma to be able to express it, because he had abused his power and abused it and abused it and abused it, and finally it's taken away from him. You know, because the the karma to block him is running neck and neck with his karma to outrun it, and then at a certain point it tips. And now he has to be, he gets the other side of what is put out. So in our own lives... When we're experiencing that, you know, we have to just realize success and failure is so much a matter of karma. And if we, some people are seemingly effortlessly successful. Someone was uh, talking to me. They were very upset because they'd been given some leadership position or they'd been invited to, into some leadership position having to do with explaining the teachings. And... Uh, they weren't as articulate about them as I am. Me, Asha. I just looked at the person and said, I've been doing this for 45 years, you know? And it's true. I think I've been doing it for many incarnations, so I was born with a certain inclination. But I learned how to do this. You don't just know how to do things. You, even if you're born with an inclination towards something, somewhere along the line you learned it. And, and that's that's just what we are. We, we train ourselves and we are able to do things. And if we can't do something, well, we have lots of options. We can learn how to do it or we can not learn how to do it. But we can't just simply lament as if it were completely random. And I'm mean, going back, you know, to Stalin again. He obviously had the concentration and the discipline to learn how to do. Even riding in his car, I am steel, I am steel wasn't an aspiration that was very admirable, but you could see he was using his willpower to make him who he, himself who he wanted to be, which means eventually, after a mere hundred thousand years, all that power would still be in him when he finally pays off the karma. Oh, I know what I was saying is that just we're just working with karma a lot of the time. We have obstacles we have to overcome. We just have to we set something in motion and now we have to sort through it, see where it takes us. Okay, any thoughts or comments or questions about that? You know, I'm, I've been very health conscious in my life um, ever since I was about 18. 
And uh, I've often said, you know, I'm, I'm just really lucky, I'm really healthy, and I am lucky, I am really healthy, um, and I have taken care of my health. But it was one day I realized, oh, I probably had a lot of incarnations when I was sick. I mean, so self-evidently. How did I get so, so interested in it so early? And why was I so persuaded at a time when most people think they're invincible that I was vulnerable? I mean, I felt, I felt like I was vulnerable when I was 18 and that I immediately had to start taking care of things. What is that? That's a memory. And how did that, I come to that? Well, because I was profligate with my health and I lost it. I mean, everything, it's all so reasonable when you think of it like that. And, and this is the most important point, there is only one way out. Well, if you would like to learn to be articulate, you need to study the teachings, you need to make notes, you have to articulate the ideas, you have to practice. I mean, you have to just do it, that's all. I still don't sing very well, but it's no surprise. I don't sing very much. I don't study singing. Wow. I feel like I could. <laughs> this is the, the line in the Jane Austen movie. This, the aunt, which is so impossible. She comes in and she's, she's just saying, you know, there's a young girl playing the piano really well and this woman is trying to get everybody's attention. Oh, yes, yeah, she said, I too could have been a great pianist if I had ever learned. <laughs> so there you have it. <laughs> Karen Gamma, by contrast, at the age of five, was accompanying the choir. I mean, she was just born to it and born to professional musicians and had it in her from when she started. But as Swami said, you don't see all the lifetimes of struggle. You see somebody who's good at something and you imagine that they're, they're lucky and you're jealous or you feel inferior. But you, you don't see all the lifetimes that build up to that lifetime when suddenly it's effortless Nothing is effortless. It's just exactly in balance. It's very hard to grasp that because we want it and we want it now. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions or thoughts? Okay, let's, it's a little early, but let's take a break rather than start on the next one. Okay. We are now on number 30. The master responded to people according to the energy they projected. Often what they projected and the way he responded were very subtle. He once refused the application to the monastery of a young man who, some of the monks felt, was very sincere. If you could see the karma, was all the master said. Wow, I know. I was thinking of a couple of instances. Well, there's that story that we hear elsewhere where a master was handed a newborn baby and as he described it, he almost dropped the baby because he saw, quote, the carried over consciousness of a murderer. You know, you don't like to think that, but a person who grows up to be a violent criminal may well have had that tendency, and at one point they were a little tiny baby. It's, it's just so, um, we're given that kind of breathing room, but then we either continue in the same way or we don't. Um, I remember I was uh, with Swamiji once, and um, it's just a small group of people. Let me think how this was. I'm just, I'm just thinking exactly what happened here. He walked, uh, he, he walked over and he sat down. I must have been with him. He sat down and he had a very brief conversation with this, uh, it happened to be a woman. And then quite abruptly he stood up and just walked away. And I, I couldn't 
I, I couldn't understand what happened, but later, later on, he said something to me, essentially about some attitude that woman was holding where she was trying to insist on something she wanted Swami to conform to, and he wasn't about to conform to it. And he had just walked over, perceived that she was still holding that, and then when he saw it, he just walked away. On the surface, you wouldn't have known what had happened. But that's what took place. There was another one that a, a, a woman told me about. Actually, she came to me because she, this was, she came to me, this must have happened 20 or 25 years ago. Uh, probably not that long, but a decade at least. And she came to me because she um, was all conflicted about Swami. She didn't know what to think. She didn't, she didn't, uh, she wasn't a very, she wasn't a very in tune person. And she was just trying to make, make everything work her way. And she couldn't figure Swami out and he didn't conform to what she wanted. And she'd heard rumors and, you know, just all these different things. She just couldn't figure it out. So he was returning from a long journey and he was having a big uh, welcome home reception at Ananda village. It must have been his birthday or something like that. And so she was extremely intent in her way of wanting to be intent was she wanted to sort of get close to him and have him prove himself to her one way or another. So she first told me about how he walked into the group and so on and she was standing in one place and he was standing walking quite toward her but then he just turned his back and walked the other way. Now, at first, because over many years, I've seen many people imagine things. I mean, I myself have imagined things. Swamiji, you know, suddenly gets a gnat in his eye and you think it, you caused it. Or you cause that sudden look of consternation on his face. Or, I mean, because I used to be his secretary and I would get, we, he would get letters. We would get letters that would say, I'm so sorry for what I did the other day at the tea party. And Swami would say, what tea party? You know, like, what are we talking about? Because it really hadn't happened. It was just enormous self-consciousness. So my first response toward this uh, person who was talking to me was to tell her that, I mean, really, he's not that rude. But then I actually stopped for a moment and I thought about it. I said, okay, picture this from Swami's point of view. He's been away Maybe, maybe he'd been away for months, I don't know. He comes home to Ananda village. People have come from all over the country, all, even all over the world, to welcome him home. It's a time of great merriment and happiness, and you're there like this. You know, even though you're trying to be nice, your mind is actually full of criticism, full of doubt. You're challenging him to prove that he's not awful. Honestly, he doesn't need to prove to you that he's not awful. And he doesn't care. You know, it's just not his job to win you. And and this is something that I also thought about at this point. So I mean, never try to to persuade anybody of anything. If you were interested, he would help you forever. But if you were, you know, wanted to just fight and wanted to prove your point, he would just, you know, he'd be perfectly cheerful about it, but he just wouldn't engage. Because why would he? He wasn't trying to dominate people. He wasn't trying to collect disciples. You know, he wasn't trying to save souls by winning them to the cause. He was just there to help. So Swami is, and I said, I think it may have happened just as you felt. Swami's walking in. He's perfectly happy to see you. He walks towards you, and all of a sudden he gets all these vibes. And he just thinks, I don't need this. <laughs> and he goes over here. You know, if there's a whole lot of people who are really happy to see you and one isn't, why would you force yourself upon that one? And... Um, that's sort of what 
that's sort of what Swami's talking about here, the Master was responding on many different levels to things that others could not always see. Somebody behaves, even we had the earlier, the opposite, where Swamiji was cold to that man because he kept his appointments with Master but never kept his appointments with Swami. But Master responded to what he was putting out to him. And the fact that he wasn't putting out this energy to Swami, well, that was, perhaps it would have, might have been better for him if he did, but he wasn't. But what he was putting out was clean and insincere, and so Master responded. But this monk, whatever he was putting out, Master could just see he doesn't belong with us. And, and it was, it's not always easy, because not everybody can perceive what people are perceiving. Um, very interesting. Any other comments or thoughts here? Okay, number 31. Master says, I usually know when God wants me to save someone. Isn't that sweet? He said, I then show particular interest. If that person doesn't respond, I accept it as God's will. That is to say, as that person's non-acceptance of God's will. But if he accepts the help God extends to him through me, I know that he will be saved. God teaches through those who love him purely and have surrendered themselves completely to him. The end of every person's story, however, depends on that person himself. Everyone has the sacred right of free will. Isn't that interesting? What Master is also saying when I feel if God tells tells him to help someone, but that person doesn't respond, I accept that as God's will. Meaning that Master doesn't have a personal stake in it. And this is also exactly what I was saying about Swamiji. That Master's not going to then try to argue that person to stay on the path. Because it, it, the, it's offered, but this is where it's in the Bible. As many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. But that receiving has to be a conscious act. And if, if, if you've had to, if the guru, so to speak, has had to argue you into accepting it, it's just, you're just going to retreat and find a better argument to be able to do it later or dominates you with his will or frightens you with, with the guilty consequences or shames you into conforming. You know, any of the things, many, any of the many things that religion has often used um, in order uh, to, to get people to be adherents. But the, the true guru just offers and if it's rejected, the whole story of Kumar in Autobiography of a Yogi in Sri Yukteswar. I mean, Kumar, Sri Yukteswar must have felt, I mean, he wouldn't, Master also puts that about the strange attraction, you know, who can fathom the depth of this man's heart. But still, there must have been some sense that this is what he was supposed to do. And so he tried. But it it hurt his heart. In that story, Sri Yukteswar was, it, it hurt him to see that this man was going to have to go on and suffer. But still, there must have been something. Something told him to do that. Master said nobody crossed his path except that it was the will of God. There was always a purpose there. I watched Swamiji many times through the years. You, just, you would never know. He would just put out energy toward someone. He would just feel... I remember... I think this comes later, but... Yeah. I remember one man in San Francisco. Swami just sort of said to him... He was relatively casual... Swami just turned to him and he said, you really should come and live in our community. And it, was the, it wasn't anywhere on the man's um, 
priority list. And then Swami looked at him and says, I rarely talk to people like that. You should know this. But I really think you should do this. And then he just left it there and the man never did. But it was just out of, out of somewhere he felt to say that. He was a good man. It would have been nice for him. He, he went off in another direction. Yeah. Chilling. That's what I wrote here. Chilling. <laughs> I've told you how many times reading through my, the last 40 years of my life, I've been amazed how many times Swami offered and I didn't accept it. I didn't see it. I, I reacted rather than responded. Chilling. It's not that, those, are not, those were not happy days, reading those notes. Those are the days I stopped and cleaned the house for a while. <laughs> which I like even less than anything. So that tells you how bad it was. Okay. Any other questions or comments? Okay, number 32. In the above connection... I remember the master one afternoon devoting a considerable amount of time to a casual visitor. He answered all the young man's questions and gave him more words of advice than I'd ever heard him share with a newcomer before. As far as I know, the man never returned. My reading of that situation was that the man felt in his heart and indeed demonstrated outwardly a certain openness to the master's vibrations. But after his departure, worldly desires reawakened within him, enclosing him once again in the fog of delusion. Delusion it is that causes people to cling to their old, comfortable ways of thinking and being. Still, the Master must have seen in that visitor some potential for awakening, for it was never his way to speak of these matters casually. The minds of most human beings are like the sky on a partly cloudy day. The mental clouds may part for a time and let in the sunlight of clarity, but unless those people deliberately seek out the bright spots and bask in their warmth, the clouds close in again and hide behind masses, mists of worldly karma, the sunlight of clarity. Well, I don't know what to say, except, oh dear. <laughs> but it, what he's also saying here, and it's really, this is the most important thing to realize, is when spiritual opportunities come to you, do not think that you can squander them because they will always be there. Do not think, oh, later or tomorrow or next incarnation. You, know, you, you come to the point where it's offered to you and you, you need to take it. and you, you need to act on it. You need to build on it. You can't just stand on the sidelines and wait and wonder. I mean, think about it karmically. The whole universe conspires to open a door for you. And then you say, well, no, you know, I'd actually rather go fishing. I'd rather read a novel. There's an awfully good movie playing. You know, I don't feel like it today. I think I'll just follow this. It's like... What will bring that opportunity back to you? And of course, we can only do what we can do. And I, as I said, I myself squandered a lot of opportunities I wish I didn't squander. But nonetheless, every time we can possibly rise to it, you know, we should, we should take it. We should do it. We should be where we're supposed to be. We should follow through with a priority. We should use our time, money, and energy in a way that is responsive to what's been given to us. How else do we express gratitude? Be, we can be very grateful, but 
Where, where is that gratitude? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm so lucky to be here. And yeah, what's, what's on television now? It's, it's, it's a very important point. And it is chilling. But God is not cruel. <laughs> I mean, I've watched it. People just come and go, come and go. The mist, Swami's image is just perfect. The mist parts for a while, and it's so clear. But then you just lose it. But it'll come back. You know, we, we can't be too hard on ourselves. Yes, Karen? So one of the ways that, <clears throat> that I've used to try to stay awake to what's out there being offered is um, looking at what am I afraid of? You know, what scares me? Um, what are some other ways that we can sort of spark that alertness, you know, and, and not sort of drift just look how you're spending your time. Look how you're spending your money. Look how you're spending your, your um, thoughts. You know, where am I? I mean, this is what happens to people is, oh yeah, I used to go to all the events and now I don't anymore. I used to read a lot of spiritual books and now I don't anymore. Um, just, just watch. Just literally just stand back and look at yourself. Look at your life. Look, look what you're doing. Look who your friends are. Look where you go for entertainment and leisure, just just look at it and see whether or not it's still following the path you need to follow. I mean, we, we can't crank the, the crank, we can't crank ourselves any tighter than we can be. We won't necessarily do better by creating more tension within ourselves. So we have to also be, and this is the, the in maybe the next one, Master was alternately strict and very lax with us. It would just depend on what we needed. We we're trying to find balance. Um, mostly, much of the time, it's a lack of energy. I mean, I will find if I'm too tired and I pick up one of Swami's books, I just can't read it. You know, sometimes I can't read the books at night. I can only read them in the morning because I'm just more of a morning person. And at night, I'll try to pick up a book and it's just like it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, The one thing, just in reverse, and this is not an option that's open to anyone now, but one of the things about being with Swami Kriyananda is that you had to put out a lot of energy. And I personally liked being forced to put out energy. But sometimes, Swami actually said later, sometimes I saw a look of desperate exhaustion in your eyes. That was the phrase he used once. Oh, did it show? You know, just, it, it wouldn't even be just hours of work because I was very young and full of energy. But just the, the necessity to always be alert, because you could just never get anything past him. He was always tuned in. And um, one friend of mine said he sometimes used, because she was in the habit of just kind of like tuning out and and not, and just how people, I mean, I don't know how people, because this just isn't, this isn't where I go, I go to sleep. But he would just say things that were slightly preposterous, because then she would just say, uh-huh, yes, uh-huh, like this, you know, because he wasn't, she wasn't really listening she was just letting, just letting the sort of sound go. And, and he would push her into suddenly realizing that she was being ridiculous. But you just have to stay awake. So you just... I, to me, it's the lack of energy most of the time or the lack of refined energy. You know, I just, you just watch your energy. just becomes unrefined. You too, eat too much ice cream, you go to a movie that has not such great vibration. You hang out with friends. You're listening to the radio or the television too much. And all of a sudden, your vibration just doesn't match this anymore. 
And you're, you're bored when you're sitting in church. And you start thinking that the festival is really a bad idea. You know, just all kinds of things happen. People often tell me the festival bores them. Not often, that's not fair, but occasionally. I said, well, you know, I probably have heard it and read it more than anyone in the world. It's true that I am reading it. I have, I have a job. But it just every single time I hear it, there's something new and interesting in it. So I'm not really sure it's the festival. You know, maybe you're a little asleep when you're listening. I mean, these are the kinds of things. If you start carping, Arjuna, Krishna says to Arjuna, oh, ye who have ca- uh, conquered the carping spirit, you're no longer criticizing what's in front of you. When your mind starts carping, well, I really don't like that minister that much, you know. Look at so-and-so, and the altar doesn't look very good today. Who did those flowers? You know, just, <laughs> I just, you, just start, you just start in, and you just never stop. Yogananda himself said, if I started now listing the shortcomings of this organization, meaning SRF at the time, he said, I could start now and never stop. He said, but what's the point? So it's just all those little things that start. We start feeling oppressed. We feel that people are being rude to us. Nobody really appreciates me. I'm the only one who works. You know, just like... (laughs) There it goes. That was Bernard last time. How can I be doing all this physical work? I have this weak body. Okay, we'll give you a nice room. But then he just spun out from that. But Master, that's where he was going. That's where he wasn't receptive anymore to Master changing him. It's not something that you need to like lie awake at night chewing your fingernails about, but it's something you need to take, we need to take extremely seriously. Progress is not automatic. And we cannot just say, oh, whatever I do is fine. It's all, you know, it's all in God's plan. Well, it is, and so is wandering for another 100,000 years. Then that becomes God's plan. But it's because even if Master sees that you're supposed to be saved by Him, but you don't really respond, he just accepts that it may be true, but not now. And that's where you go from there. Yeah, quite a story, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's, there's just so many parts of the spiritual path where you really just has, have to stiffen your spine. There's so many temptations. And I'm not actually talking about the temptation of slipping away from the path. This is, you know, this is what do you do after you've made the mistake? That's really much worse. Because that's the point of... of and we're, we're all tortured by remorse. It's just there. All the great saints, there's the story of um, uh, Bernadette of Lourdes. That's what we're doing for our school play. I believe this is in the movie about her, that old movie, whatever it's called, Song of Bernadette. And they have her when she was dying, and she died in her early 20s. And she's, she's so full of remorse. And, and it turns out what the, what the incident is that her mother once worked so hard to make this soup. They were so poor. And her mother had made this soup and she didn't appreciate it. And she's just, it's breaking her heart because she feels, you know, the, the struggle of her mother and that she didn't respond properly. And she's heartbroken because she didn't respond properly. And on a certain level, you... It's, it's, it's terrifying. But you also have to realize this is just the battle that everyone fights. In the, in the imitation of Christ, I just read this, 
it says that even the greatest of saints um, are tempted. And temptation is not just the temptation to indulge, you know, in uh, too much ice cream or anger or sensuality or something. The greatest temptation is to allow yourself to be drawn away from your experience of God's love for you. And the way we let ourselves be drawn away is that we become obsessed with our failings and we enter into that vibration of failing in which God's love can't reach us. It's very, very difficult and is the greatest enemy. Maybe I'm just talking about myself, but I know it's the greatest enemy. I've been fighting it. We've all, I, I find that it's the greatest battle, certainly my own. Swami himself talked about self-doubt, is how he put it. Just, well, self-doubt, that's exactly what it is. Just, I mean, all through his life, virtually to the end. That was his Achilles heel, so to speak. That's why the karma he had with SRF and um, Tara's initial attack on him back in 1962, the effort was to, was to cause him to lose faith in himself. And because she knew that was his weakness, is that he, would, he, he, was, he was plagued by self-doubt. And so all through his lifetime, all of his gurubhais were always telling him that he was going against his guru's will. I mean, talk about awful and perfect. And he, he was not immune to doubt. Now the imitation of Christ says, um, even the greatest of saints are always tempted because we never want to lose sight of the fact that, the, that we ourselves are fallible without the grace of God. So we, we can't be allowed to rely just on ourselves. We have to always be finding, seeing the flaws and the limitations of that and then seeking our refuge, not in I've finally got it together. But we seek our refuge in the fact that I'll never get it together, but God loves me anyway and will always lift me up. I, I was talking to someone who, was, who had been through a very difficult personal experience and then at a certain point the, the pain was lifted it was, it was a self, self-generated. There was no external reality. It was just self-generated uh, self-perception that was, it became extremely agonizing. But at a certain point, the grace of God came in and that the darkness just lifted. But the person was reading it. If I had been stronger, I would have been able to conquer it myself. Uh, but that, that just that, that comment from the imitation of Christ, even the greatest of saints are tempted. Even Jesus was tempted. Why would Jesus be tempted? Why, why would, I mean, why would the divine have put that into the story? Because everyone is tempted, because we must constantly be reminded. Otherwise, really, if we were all terrific, would we seek an alternative to our own selves? So we have to always be reminded how weak we are. That gets misinterpreted into saying that we're sinful. We're not sinful. It's just that as long as we're standing in the ego, it always, it's always dual. 
It's always got another dimension to it. The only place that we're actually free is when we just put it aside. As Swami said, I know I'm not interested in my personality anymore, he said, or my egoic self. I'm not interested in its virtues and I'm not interested in its faults. I'm just not interested in it anymore. I'm only interested in my relationship with God. And it will just keep doing what it's doing over here. But I'm not going to define myself by that anymore. See, that's what happens. We become defined by it. It's very serious and very difficult. We just kind of all have to stick together and help each other through it and cling to God with just throw yourself on the mercy of the Lord. I mean, that's, it's, these are all cliches, but they're all cliches because they're true. You just throw yourself there. All right. Anything else? Because we're just about out of time. So, where were we? 33? Did we finish 33? We're in the middle of 33. Oh, no, we're at 33. Oh, the clouds, clouds close again. Okay, so we went from number 28 to number 32, and we'll start at 33 next week. Thank you.